The following is a special presentation of the Buccaneers Sports Network. This is the Jay and Keith Show. Two broadcasters, two microphones, and one meticulously scripted podcast. You what? Just kidding. Get it, J.K.? You get it. That's what I thought was so funny. It's not funny. Alongside Keith Brake, here's the voice of the Bucks, Jay Sandoz. All right, Jane Key Show with you on a Monday on the podcast. We're talking ETSU football. We will talk very quickly Southern Conference football, and we'll talk men's and women's basketball. I think a productive weekend for both, even though I know men didn't win the championship game against Louisiana Lafayette last night on ESPNU or evening on ESPNU. Certainly, I thought a good showing for the two games for them. Brenda Mock Brown doing spectacular things on the women's basketball side. Or should I say Giselle Thomas is doing spectacular things. Indeed. On the women's side. And we're going to talk ETSU football and the Blue Ridge border battle and what uh, was another ETSU somehow entertaining one-score game that is somehow written in everybody's contract that will ever be the coach at ETSU, which is good, I think, in one regard, that you keep people normally in the stands to see how the game is going to end. Uh, it's just the flip result in 2018, 2021. We've talked at nauseum. Everything went the Bucks' way in 19 and 22. It has not gone the ETSU's way. I will say this. I was curious because of all the talk from the coaching staff, both coordinators, about the bye week, the freshness you should see a little bit different um, – a little bit play out of guys, look fresher, look faster, speeder. I think certainly came to fruition because West Carolina came in averaging 500 and something yards of offense, 30-some, was that 33, I think it was, points per contest, mm-hmm. and it was a 2017 game. So, you know, the wise guys thought 75 points was going to be scored betwixt the two teams, and uh, boy, did uh, they show you that uh, they were not going to score. But I think it – Overall, when you just look at the the team numbers, I think it showed that ETSU and they gave up yards, but when they needed to make plays in the red zone, they had a couple fourth down stops. They had a couple red zone turnovers, two interceptions in the red zone, um, forced a turnover on one of those fourth down stops. Plus, ETSU had a uh, bad four down uh, fourth down turnover on their end, where Trace Kelly just dropped the snap, but somehow threw an incompletion, and yep. then that actually. Defense held and didn't give up a, a point. So there were some yards given up, but when it really got down to it, ETSU was able to make some plays uh, defensively, and that's kind of what we were wanting to see was ETSU going to give up another 40 or 50 burger to a team that likes to put up that many points, and ETSU's defense gave 20. I think Elijah Huzzy played one of the best games you could play in a Buccaneer uniform from a secondary standpoint. It's unfortunate, and he was down on himself because the miracle punt that was thrown or whatever that was that ended up going into reception, Huzzy was beating himself up over it a lot and was kind of taking the blame and, and couldn't believe it. But I, if you watch the play, I don't think that – I think it would be tough for any human to look at Elijah Huzzy and say, you know what, Elijah, that was your fault on that play. Like, I don't know who would say that. Absolutely. I That was a situation where – one of the top playmakers on the other team went out and made an extraordinary play. He found an extra gear. He he ran around the outside of Huzzy, got behind him, and then dove and caught the football. Um, so many things have to break exactly Sincere Lee's way 
for that to happen. And the fact that they all did happen, I think, is a testament to his ability to make the improbable manifest for Western Carolina. And sincerely, you want to put this in bold prediction, sincerely will be an All-American wide receiver before the end of his college career. If he stays in the FCS, he's an All-American. Uh, I think he's that good. He's fast. Uh, he's uh, got really solid hands. As made, He made some fantastic catches. He made one uh, in traffic for the first touchdown of the game on the opening drives. A really tight window from Gonzalez. Uh, probably could have taken a hit. Probably should have taken a big hit uh, to, to catch that. But, uh, yeah, he, he's, he was the player that impressed me the most uh, of the, the wide receivers. And Raphael Williams was really, really good. Don't get me wrong, but sincerely, he's a guy that I just look at and go, I do not want to have to cover that guy for four years. Um, he is a really, really special player, and he made a really special play. And I think the same thing can be said of the touchdown that uh, Williams had earlier in the fourth quarter that uh, that got them on the board and, and got them in front. Uh, at that point, it was 17-14. to 14. He made a great move that just juked a guy out of his shoes and sometimes that just happens you go up against great players and sometimes those great players are going to beat you and there are all there are western carolina is maybe not a great team they've had some ups and downs they've had a lot of inconsistency they've had moments where they lacked discipline but they do have star power and explosiveness and the players that bring that to bear brought that to bear on Saturday. I don't think ETSU's defense should beat itself up over the fact that, hey, they have some extraordinary playmakers and we weren't able to lock them down every single time, every single play, all game, because it's just that just doesn't happen in football. I, I just find it amazing that, again, you give up 475 yards, but, again, the defense gives up 20, 20 points. Mm -hmm. And... To me, that's a little bit of what we saw last year in that game where West Carolina had about 550 yards of offense. They had 28 points on offense in the first half. They had that kick return, so it was 35 total points. And then three drives got in the red zone and came up empty-handed three times in the red zone a year ago, and ETSU was able to pitch the shutout. And, you know, it was another situation, you know, kind of woulda, shoulda, coulda. You know, my guy Juwan Martin gets a touchdown earlier in the game. Mm -hmm. He ends up coughing up the football in the red he zone. He fumbles in the red zone, yeah. You know, then there's uh, – I was trying to think there was another – a couple drops uh, by Wilson would have kept drive alive. He caught one later. It did keep a drive alive, but he, he dropped a couple, I think, second and ten passes that were mm -hmm. would have been for a first, hit him in the hands. I mean, just, uh, you know, Tyler Rodell missed a wide-open Quinn Caballero and an Isaiah yeah. Wilson on the play right before the half. Uh, where he tried to throw it downfield to Anaj Carter. Uh, I mean, there were several things. There's again, there's plenty of blame to go around at at everywhere. This is uh, you know, it's a team game. Team win, team loses. It's also unfortunate that for whatever reason this year, if there is a call to be made late in the game that appears to have would have gone for the Bucks is not called. And I, I don't, I don't know. I don't subscribe to any theory that because ETSU got a lot of calls last year that this is a makeup I don't subscribe I, you know everything's kind of its own deal you know didn't get the pass interference call against Sanford didn't get the defensive holding or pass interference call against Wofford which both are pretty evident the face mask was atrociously not called and again 
I talked to a couple of Western fans that asked me, you know, do you think that cost you the game? No, I don't think it cost me a game. I think it, or ask if it would have cost Western the game. Let me rephrase it. Mm. If they would have called the face mask, I said no because ETSU there was two twenty four whatever on the clock would have been automatic first down around the five six yard line. If ETSU scores with two minutes, I just saw Western go right down the field, you know, in two minutes. So given twenty seconds less, do I think they couldn't have gone down the field and potentially scored? That's the there's a couple offenses, you know, Wofford. Maybe well, you also trouble. think, you know, trouble, but does, I mean, does getting first and goal with the six with 220 left change the play calls from the offense? Do you run between the tackles with Sailors a little bit more? Because they certainly weren't shy about doing it. Jacob ran the ball 32 times on Saturday. I think it's a situation where, okay, we, we want to run some clock because we think we can get down there and score. At the very least, uh, we think that we can play for overtime and kick a field goal right at the very end. Uh, and and force OT uh, even if we don't get the win. So I mean there are there are some situations. There is a scenario where yeah that probably does uh, decide the outcome of the game in, in that respect with whatever there is two and a half minutes three minutes left. Well, I mean, uh, ETSU West, runs the ball a right, little bit more. Western has timeouts and yeah, so they they left the game with timeouts to had. So they could have stopped clock even if you run the ball. My point is that does not necessarily mean Western would have lost the game if the face mask was called, which what what I think the direct question was. Do you think Western would have basically lost the game because that that was their, I guess a little bit of their argument on why you don't do it because you know it would have cost them the game. Well, hey, I don't care if it cost somebody the game if somebody gets it's hurt, a face mask. You call you throw has the flag a face mask ripped around and if it would have happened we i try to be very honest in all my broadcasts and i even said it in the mercer game when mercer got flagged for uh, a, a personal foul hitting somebody out of bounds where the etsu guy blocked the mercer guy into an etsu player that that was atrocious egregious and one of the worst calls that you could have seen i openly say that if a blatant call now pass interference and stuff i get it's a little more subjective. You would like to see it called consistently and stuff. And sometimes late in the game, they just want a player to make a play. Just like late in the game, and we'll talk about basketball later, underneath the hoop, sometimes they don't call a foul. They want people to make plays. I get all of that. My point was it wasn't like there was 13 seconds to go in a game and extended it and the game would have ended on the next play. Western would have called timeouts if ETSU took, which they needed to score a touchdown because they didn't want to. That's my point. I don't think ETSU would have sat on the ball – hoping to run two minutes off and score a touchdown to win the game, they needed to score, and they would have did whatever to score. And if that took one play, great. If it took two or three, great. I don't think if this was ETSU's Quay Holmes, Jacob Sailors a year ago, you probably could have ran four times and hoped you scored on the fourth down play because you're going to go for it on fourth and goal at the one. This is not that team. If ETSU would have gone to that thinking, well, we need to run the clock all the way down and throw a touchdown pass last second – or kick a field goal send it overtime last second, I think that's a bad theory, especially the way the defense had played. If the defense had given up 55 points, yes, do what you can. Do not let the defense play. But I would have given and still would have trusted the defense. And, again, a lot of people would say, well, they didn't stop them 224 to go. Yes, they had a miracle play. But who's to say they didn't make a miracle play after ETSU scored? There's a lot of what-ifs. My point was they do not automatically lose the game if the face mask is there. They still would have had a shot to hold ETSU to a field goal, turn them over, 
or if ETSU scores, they got a chance to respond with maybe a minute 45 to go because they had timeouts left. Sure, but it does significantly alter the game flow if ETSU has first and goal with the six instead of having to settle for a field goal by default, which is basically what happened once the face mask, or once the face mask was not called and Rydell was sacked by Jaquarius Gwynn. Uh, that was almost an inevitable outcome that you were going to have to bring Keltner on. You were going to have to kick the field goal. It sets up a different scenario where the resources available to Western on their final drive would change. The play calling philosophy might change if ETSU is playing with a lead versus playing uh, for with a tie because now Western Carolina, if you score a touchdown, Western has to score a touchdown and win a game. Field goal doesn't do anything for you. So everything changes philosophically over the course of the last two minutes and 25 seconds, however that that plays out. So it did change uh, the way the game played out. Did it fundamentally alter the outcome of the game? Not necessarily. There's no real way to say that one way or the other. And that's my point. Ultimately, I think we're a little bit in agreement here. My point is it did not definitively say ETSU was going to win the game because they got the face mask call and Western had no shot to either tie or win the game. That was ultimately my point. It obviously changes everything because I, you I will don't say, know where it goes. I do think it significantly decreased ETSU's chances of winning the game. That, that did not get called. Correct. And again, there was still a miracle throw and catch in that that I, you still couldn't have predicted even when anything happened. And you couldn't predict what would happen down the road. I mean, again, there's no way to know. I, my philosophy and thought process on any of those is – you call that, you see what happens, and the other team still has a chance to make plays. And I think ETSU would not have milked the game away because I don't think they can. I they couldn't afford to. So Western would have had a shot. Either way, Western won. I, I mean, you got to make a play. Western made more plays than ETSU did. Mm-hmm. ETSU did a lot defensively. They looked a lot more refreshed. They were making plays. They were running all over the place. Everything about ETSU and the bye week seemed to have worked exactly how the coaches had said it. And I was a little skeptical of that, to be honest, but they did. Everybody looked a little fresher. Everyone was able to run a little better. Cornerbacks against a much speedier offensive team had nobody running behind them, at least that I saw, running naked behind them. I mean, again, the play that Sincere Lee made – he was on the sideline. He curls around. But it wasn't like he was 10 yards past Huzzy. He was right there and just read the bad throw better than Huzzy. Yeah. That was it. The defense definitely was a lot fresher. And that was very obvious. Um, the bye week helped. But, again, like you said, Western Carolina, in a key moment, had somebody, a really talented player, go out and make a big play for him that won him the football game. And that's something that you just – you just got to have as a football team. You got to have guys that'll go out there and make low percentage plays a reality for you. And if you don't have that, it can be really difficult, especially in a league where everybody is as tight together as the SOCON. It's going to be really, really hard to win football games consistently. Yeah, I, man, ETSU probably lost that loss in that last two and a half minute span of the game was probably the season in a microcosm, right? I'd say so, yeah. I mean, in all honesty, if you just like the way the non-call, Bill goal, somehow didn't get a stop, somebody made a play. And again, you could easily look back to 2021, and ETSU had a lot of those that went their way, a bounce here, a play there, miracle 
throw catch whatever it was here and there so I mean even the Kennesaw State game I mean you needed a score an onside kick and a score and they converted a fourth and ten in which somebody forgot that Quay Holmes is on the field and was doing jumping jacks on the left side of the field and <laughs> caught a pass and walked 12 yards before anybody even noticed it so I mean again things happen you know and I it's sports you get going it's why we enjoy it, it's why we like it um it was a rivalry game it felt that way a walk-off win for a team is always especially and you know my theory if you've listened to my podcast I am a huge fan of winning a rivalry game on the road to make the home t- hometown fans leave ill hmm but it stinks when you're on the other side of that. <laughs> I'm a, a big bit. fan of a it. Bit. Huge fan of it, but it did I, I, would, I would love to have three or four more of these games where these two teams go back and forth, and ETSU wins a few, and Western wins a couple, and you really get the, the juices flowing in the rivalry again. Because this is, you know, I said it all last week, this is the most played game in the history of ETSU football. Not Chattanooga, not even App State. It, it's Western Carolina. This is the oldest and longest series in the history of Buccaneer football, and I think it should be a bigger moment in the year, and people are clearly in agreement with that. Otherwise, you wouldn't go out in the middle of the woods on the Appalachian Trail, pull a rock off the side of a mountain, and play for it. So this is something that I really hope we see a a really good back-and-forth series between these two teams over the next decade or so. But you're right. It sucks to be on the wrong side of it. I mean, again, it was a good game. I thought, again, Kerwin Bell and his staff, creatively, offensively, shocked that, you know, Kogan's Gonzalez got to start, but not really. I mean, it's just, you know, they're looking to, to make a play. I think the one frustrating thing was really uh, – and it wasn't frustrating for me to issue not making a play, but I thought Kerwin Bell and Cade Bell drew up two third-down plays perfectly – to counter what they thought Billy Taylor was going to do. One the screen, the other kind of that triple option look that I think it was the only time they ran triple option. <laughs> so. Oh, yeah, with the, the the toss pitch or the fake pitch uh, where Gonzalez then just streaks down the yes. field for a huge gain. Yeah. yeah. Uh, they use they used the quarterback's running ability. They used Gonzalez's running ability really, really well. Uh, that was um, – honestly, he's fun to watch. There's a lot of great young players on that team. And, you know, everything is, is – um, written in pencil in this day and age with the transfer portal and whatnot. And you hear all these rumblings about the way that teams are utilizing the portal. Um, You never know if you're going to hold that group together. But if that group stays together in Cullowee, they're going to be pretty good. Reed is good, good tailback. They got a good young offensive line that finally looked like it was starting to gel uh, here at the end of the year. They looked as good as they've looked all season. Uh, Gonzalez is a good young quarterback, true freshman. Lee and uh, Williams, and they got so many. They got, they got like eight young wide receivers that just make you go, man, that's, that's not a bad bunch. They've got some good young players on defense as well. Their defensive front's been strong. Uh, they got a really good safety, um, a couple of really good safeties. Uh, but overall, um, I think it's a team that has kind of showed its youth this year, showed its immaturity at times, and as that group matures, uh, they are going to be a really fun team to watch over the next, I think, two, three years. Yeah, I mean, offense name of the game, they they play a fun brand of football. They really, you know, try to press it. You know, although I thought they didn't press as much down the field, but still, they were successful in picking up big chunk plays and, uh, you know, uh, 
ETSU Western game other than one, I think, in 2017. Yep. They've all been one-score games and been entertaining. I, I take that back. Last year's wasn't either. Uh, but it's because second half, ETSU ran away with it. So, 17 and 21. The other four have been one-score games. Yep. So. And, and, and two overtime games. And Western Carolina was aggressive on, you know, fourth down. They, they, there were several situations where they had game – or they had uh, uh, um, the ball in plus territory – and they went for it on fourth down. And you think about that, think about the first one. I mean, they were what, fourth and 11 after the in, incomplete punt. Uh, they take over at the, what, the 27. They go backwards. It's fourth and 11. It's like, well, we don't know if our kicker can kick from here. We're going to go for it. It's early in the game. Got a chance to put our foot on the throttle here. And uh, they didn't get it, but they were aggressive. And they went for it. Um, and they were... Uh, then they had a fumble on another fourth down, and then they got the third ones. They were one for three, but uh, they were not afraid to keep their offense on the field in pressure situations. And I, I thought that was something that came away from conversations with Chaz Scales, the defensive coordinator, with Cade Bell, the offensive coordinator, and obviously with Kerwin during the week is they always play on the edge. They're all about being on on the edge of, of... Because playing on the edge is how you make explosive plays. And Catamounts made plenty of explosive plays on Saturday. Do you still use this in basketball? I'm assuming you do. I did. Okay. Even though it's a little football sounding. I it is a little football marching band sounding, yeah. SoCon scores we don't need to worry about. Citadel beat uh, Virginia Lynchburg by good a lot. Good, good. Good uh, for them. I'm Wofford, glad they won a game this year. Wofford got Another a uh, win over VMI. Coach Watson, though, was he now? I guess he does he technically he has to take the loss for Sanford, which is tough. He only was the interim head coach for a day before yeah. he had to play a game. So they're what, two so, and three under him? So I'm going to go ahead and count that on Conklin. Um, oh, okay. So is he three, three, and that's very benevolent of you. Didn't he win three, or did he? Or they only won two. They only won two. Uh, I thought they won three. Well, let me double check. Hey, you double check. I thought, uh, yeah, they they have won three. You're right. Citadel, right. us, and uh, VMI. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, VMI. I'm staring at the score. You think I remember that? Thirty-four, yeah. sixteen, won that one. I uh, I don't think they'll win. Uh, I don't think they'll it's win in Greenville. I don't think they'll win in Greenville this week. <sighs> I don't know. Robbery game. They got nothing to lose. Super Bowl. <sighs> Super Bowl. Uh, we'll talk about that later in the week. Let's don't talk about that now. So those are the two I really don't care about. Uh, Sanford goes to Chattanooga, and I think not shocked that they won, but you know they were up. I think it was thirty-five seventeen at one point. They were up twenty-eight to seven in the second too. quarter. Yeah, they were both. They were up twenty-eight seven, and then thirty-five seventeen when they scored with ten seventeen to go in the third quarter. And, I mean, it really looked good. Took advantage of a, a couple of turnovers. Their first score came off an interception. Ford did play in the game. Chat came right down and scored. And then Michael Hires, you know, touchdown run and then two passes to Kendall Watson. One got called back because it was scored a touchdown, but then he had stepped out of bounds. They reviewed and correctly he came. Uh, he had a foot out of bounds, got back in bounds, catch the ball. Um, 
And because he was not forced out, he can't be the first one to touch it. So, either way, uh, it was a great win for Sanford. They celebrated on Chattanooga's field. I don't think Chattanooga liked that very much, but my theory on that, if you don't want Western to celebrate on your field or Sanford to celebrate on your field, you just need to win and then you don't have to worry about it. But uh, Sanford is – found out that they needed to improve the defense. They have done that this year, and because they have done that, and it's not about trying to lead the nation in scoring, which has always been my complaint with Sanford, they are your automatic qualifiers no matter what happens next week. Correct. They have won the automatic bid, and frankly, they deserve it. Uh, they've, they've kept themselves clean uh, all throughout this process of uh, trying to get through a really, really rigorous Southern Conference and a strong Southern Conference this year, especially at the top. Uh, they they played Furman and they got a win. They played Chattanooga and they got a win. They play Mercer this week. And now they're in a position where if they win that game, they are almost assured of a top eight seed because I think the SoCon champion from a group of pretty strong top four, I think the best team of that top four should be in the top eight in the country. And I don't think you'll get a lot of resistance on that. All of their receivers were great. Chandler Smith, Kendall Watson was awesome. Uh, DJ Reyes made some big big plays for him. Obviously, the uh, the big 80-yarder. Uh, that's that's going to get get the juices flowing a little bit for anybody um, you know, at the end of the game. But, uh, man, w- what a performance on both sides of the ball from, from Sanford. They turn Chattanooga over a couple of times, uh, stop them on downs once. Yeah, Ford got a you – know, Ford was averaging six yards a carry, and he scored some points. But when you get those kinds of stops and your offense can get you separation – that's all that Sanford needs. They need two turnovers a game, and they will win by two scores. And that's what they got. I have a feeling that they will find a way into a, a turnover here or there uh, in that Mercer game because this team has just been really fantastic. And you, you got to tip your cap to them. Like it's it's not it's no longer a question of well you know we could have we could have done this or they could have done that or they could have lost this team or they could have blah 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 blah. If you are eight game or if you are seven games into your eight game schedule in the SoCon and you haven't lost yet if you play your worst game of the year against Tennessee Tech and you find a way to win it if you show up at the beginning of the year and beat a much ballyhooed Kennesaw State team now granted that Kennesaw State team did kind of crash and burn but they were we were all about Kennesaw State this year we were all about Brian Bohannon's team Samford came out and immediately put a stop to it. Week zero, come out and put a stop to it. That's a team that deserves all of the praise it's getting. I mean, I, I, I don't I don't think it's a stretch to say that Chris Hatcher is the coach of the year in the SoCon for what he's been able to achieve with this group. The improvement on defense, the overall aptitude on offense that's you know generally been there, I, I think he's the coach of the year. I'm going to read you a random drive and you tell me what team okay 19 plays 84 yards oh that's definitely Sanford <laughs> 19 plays 84 yards four minutes 17 seconds that's, that's absolutely just, Sanford. 19 plays 19 plays how many a, do you know how many of those were oh, how I many of those know. were pass plays oh I, probably most of them uh I can because I mean if you're drawing a 19 plays in four minutes that's a lot of incomplete passes and hires didn't throw that many incomplete only threw in 10 incompletions Let's see here. Uh, pass, pass for nine yards. Rush up the middle. Rush up the middle. Rush up the middle. Passing complete. Pass complete. 
Rush up the middle, pass complete, rush, rush, pass complete, incomplete, complete, complete, touchdown. So, I still, I, 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 the three straight, and this is this is again where I think Samford has always been able for the whole game. Now they're you know throw ETSU out whenever they've been able to score ninety on ETSU in the last two three years, but they always have a spurt in a game where it seems like they score. Same thing against Furman. They had three straight oh. possessions with a touchdown, or maybe three touchdowns and a field goal they go four straight possessions with a touchdown against chad and then they struggle 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 you know get it to oh i'm sorry five because basically they ran they took a knee they went four touchdowns take a knee touchdown so i'm gonna take the knee out they went five straight possessions touchdowns and then in between that punt 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 and and that's sort of what they do when they score and get kind of going and figure out something they score 21, 28, 35 points in a row, and then generally teams can, you know, at that point kind of slow them down or whatever it is, uh, figure it out, and then it's too late because by the time you allow a 28, you know, straight points or 21 or 20 or whatever it's been. So Here, Here's the other thing, and, and this is this is the drive that impresses me. So when I, um, when I was at North Dakota State, they went on the road in uh, 20, I think it was, I want to say it was 17. They went on the road to Eastern Washington and they blew them out. Um, it, was, you know, it was 40 to 13 in that game. And the last possession of the game, North Dakota State ran a 17 play, 81 yard drive that took the last 1150 off the clock. And they got down to the four-yard line and took a knee and said, now nah, we're done. You're beat. Sanford ran a 15-play drive in plus territory. They went 42 yards from their own 20. So they went into plus territory. 15 plays, 42 yards to take the last 8.05 off the game clock and just refused to let Chattanooga have the ball back. How many Sanford teams in the past would even think about doing none. that? None. I can already tell you, none. I've watched all of them. None. This this is a different team. This is a di- this is not your dad's Sanford team. It's not even your older brother's Sanford team. This is a different beast. It's taken the lessons of the last five six years and applied them in ways that have made it the best team in the conference. And I just. Everything about that win at Chattanooga, except maybe the 24 points allowed because you really like to allow probably 17 in a game. But even then, with as much explosion as you can get out of that offense, you take it. That, that'll do. You can you win games giving up 24 points. You win a lot of games giving up 24 points a game if you're Sanford. So this is a very different team. Uh, it is clearly a special team down in Homewood. Um and I look forward to seeing them in the playoffs because I think this is at least a quarterfinal team. The other Southern Conference game that was of note of ranked teams that had national attention were the Furman Paladins at the Mercer Bears, which, of course, Furman, by now you know the score. They had won 23-13. And I'm going to start here. How many penalties do you think Mercer had in that game? Uh, eight. One. Really? Would you like to know what the one penalty was? Was it the penalty that set up the game-winning score? 
It was not. It was a targeting call on Ty James, who was on the punt team. So he was ejected mid-second quarter after catching a touchdown pass and was not allowed to be on the field the rest of the game. Oh, man, that's brutal. It's the only penalty Mercer had. Now, I've watched it, and I get it. Mercer people who have really come at me hard this year because of, I guess, our celebration last year on the podcast of the championship game. I wasn't part of that. I wasn't part of that. Have they come at you? No. Okay. So they've come, they've anybody. they've gone to the right guy. Uh, let me just say that. But uh in in fairness, we've had good conversations back and forth. They're not over the top. They're just enjoying the fact that going into that game that, you know, Mercer words where they were and ETSU are where we are. That being said, they asked me to look at it. Kevin Marshall, FCS Radio Nation wanted me to look at it. Socon John, Furman apologist wanted me to look at it. I looked at it. And I get where Mercer fans could be a little oh it's one of those calls so the punt returner uh Chisholm or Chiswick sorry Cali Chiswick is going to catch the punt and as he's mm-hmm. catching the punt he knows he's about to get hit because he doesn't call for a fair catch and he kind of ducks as he's catching it and Ty James is a, a crown of the helmet to the face mask and so it's a it's a bang banger but it's the crown of the helmet <laughs> To the face mask, and I know yeah, it's tough because Chiswick is ducking at the last second, but it's so fast, I, it's hard to tell would he or would he have not hit him there anyways, or would he have caught him in the upper chest neck area that still would have been ejectable. A, a couple of people said, well, why is Ty James on the punt team? And then I had to, I shot back at him. I said, well, Quay Holmes was on the punt team last year for ETSU. Because he's one of your fastest dudes. And more... Just get down the field and force the guy to make a fair catch. Well, yeah, or or just if he does break away, you got guys you want that are football players that can Mm -hmm. make tackles. I mean, ETSU and a lot of teams have made a change where, yes, there are a few backups on kickoff teams as far as backup linebackers, tight ends, safeties, uh, you know, third, four-string tailbacks, whatever, that are on those teams. But on punt teams, a lot of times there are starters on offense and defense. Uh, you know, maybe some nickelbacks, but there's a lot of start. I mean, Tyree Robinson was on it. Sailors and Holmes were both on it last year. So talking to this coaching staff, last coaching staff, Carl Torbush's coaching staff, a lot of people now are like, hey, th- those special teams plays add up. And you want your best people on the field, and they and a lot of them have the agreement. Like, look, you play on two. We're going to put you on two of the special teams, mm-hmm. not four of them, right? So even a couple linemen that are on the punt team or on the field goal team, but they're not on the punt return team or, or whatever, kickoff return, whatever. So that being said, I understand why Ty James is on there. He was a gunner. He did his job. Get down there and try to force a fair catch. Cali Chizik didn't. He's trying to make a play. It's unfortunate. It's the way the game is called. I get no one liked it for Mercer, but by the letter of whatever targeting is, it was the correct call, whether we all like it or not. Now, there's always been that talk of if a guy ducks and you're already kind of committed that you're the one that gets ejected and you can't change it. And I agree with all of that. The problem is that is not how any rule is written. And so it was a true – and Drew Chronic lost his mind, as you would imagine he would. And it was call targeting on the field, and it was upheld by the booth. So it went through all the proper channels. And unfortunately for Mercer, your best player who already had a three-yard touchdown reception 
about five, six minutes prior to being ejected for the rest of the game, I think changed some of the complexion of the game. I mean, obviously that is one of the two main targets between Devron Harper and Ty James. Those are the two targets that you would throw the football to if you're Fred Payton. And Mercer had 316 yards of offense. And Furman, 460. And it was a good day for Tyler Huff. 293 yards passing the football. 56-yard touchdown to Josh Harris. I, I, I don't I don't think – And he ran for 76 was going to be out of the play. I don't think for a second that losing Ty James to targeting is what cost Mercer that game. Mercer lost that game where a lot of teams have lost to Furman this year. They lost it at the line of scrimmage. How many times have you and I sat here and talked about the Paladins – have probably the best offensive line in isolation, the best offensive line in the SOCON this year. We've talked about it several a lot, times. A lot. It's a great unit. They play extremely well together, and they average just under five yards a rush as a team. Mercer, now this is sack adjusted, 1.8 yards, and four times the rush got to Fred Payton. Which is a season high that he was sacked, by the way. Yes, so, offensive and defensive line delivered for Furman. And that's why this team is in the position it is in, because it has the ability to win consistently on both sides of the ball at the line of scrimmage. Their playmakers are inside the hashes, and they are six foot four and 300 and some odd pounds. And they eat two pizzas stacked on top of each other every day at the dining center. Like, they are those kinds of guys. Your old-fashioned hog molly football players. That's where this Furman team really shines. And they shined in a big way against Mercer on Saturday. And that is where they won the game. And it's just refreshing that in this era where so many teams try to run five receivers and they run 10 personnel, empty backfields, all this, you know, all this smoke and mirror stuff and tempo and motion and, you know, uh, Chip Kelly's Oregon offense, that teams still win games with the caliber of their offensive and defensive lines. And Furman is that team that wins games in the trenches. They create time for Tyler Huff, who was not sacked, and averaged nine yards a pass, including that 56-yard pass to Harris for the score. Uh, their run game was really strong. This team is winning games because of its lines, and it will win against Wofford because of its lines, and it will probably win its first-round playoff game because of its lines. This team is playoff-bound at this point. With wins over Chattanooga and Mercer, I think you have to be. What if they lose to Wofford? Uh, if they lose to Wofford, I think they're one of the last one or two teams in. But I think there's, I think they should be in at this point. The caliber of their achievement would not be diminished by, or not be completely eclipsed by a loss to a team that has found its second wind in the second half of the year with the coaching change in Wofford. Well, and we will break that down a little bit more for you on Wednesday. We'll do yet another breakdown of the I have playoffs. it ready to go. Okay, we're going to do that on Wednesday because we got to talk a little basketball. 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 
Basketball! <laughs> it's not what you heard! It's what you hearing! Or something like that. Oh, what a good weekend for ETSU Hoops. Three out of four wins. Two for the women, one for the men. A tight game against the best team in the Sun Belt on Sunday at the Asheville Championship. That was a solid weekend. Uh, let me say this. I was singing the praises after the first exhibition game of Giselle Thomas. You were. You were on that hype train early. And, and I mean, <laughs> I think she was 19 for 35 from the field and 14 for 16 from the line or 12 of 14 from line. Either way. Solid numbers en route to 32 and 22 points back-to-back games. And I thought the first win going on the road was, you know, a little bit of a tone setter at St. Bonaventure's. But then the Lafayette to go and win by 20 or whatever. I was like, oh, that, that, that was, you know, to win. You want the five, numbers six, yes. with the numbers for the weekend? Get, uh, 19 of 35 okay, I got that from right. the field and four of nine. From three-point range, uh, 12 of 14 12 from of 14. the stripe. All right. So I knew it was 14 or 16, 12, 14, but 12 of 14 mm-hmm. from the stripe. The four threes is encouraging because that, I thought, was maybe a part of her game that didn't look like to be there exhibition-wise again. Uh, but watching both those games, uh, especially Sunday where I had more time to sit and really watch all of it, mm-hmm. um, it was incredible to see her ability to – make plays and big first quarter kind of set the tone but I think Brenda Mock Brown and the dribble drive and whatever offense that she wanted to run more than the maybe a little bit of the Princeton style of Coach Harris maybe fits Thomas better uh, than what now again probably doesn't suit some other players but for at least Giselle Thomas she is off to a blistering hot start and when ETSU gets Courtney Moore back and uh, they did get Neva Brown back so that is uh, a 13 little, points against the bonnies yeah and and that was helpful you could tell there was somebody else to lean on scoring wise from the perimeter so i just an impressive two game showing we're going to have her uh, second half of the coaches show tonight uh, if you don't tune in that on the buccaneer sports network we will have uh, coach corals on the first 30 next 30 we'll have coach brown the following week we'll have desmond oliver so trying to hit all the bases during this crossover season but i thought a very impressive showing first time ETSU's won back-to-back non-conference road games since 2019. Mm. It was New Year's Eve, so it was almost 2020, but it was 2019. That's a long. That's a long time ago in basketball. I mean, that's what like 30 non-conference games. It's a lot not to have back-to-back wins. So in order, to, I mean, you have those, and then they've got the Thursday noon game. Yep. Which we will we will talk about either Wednesday or Thursday. We're not quite mapped out all the shows yet, but we certainly are going to have a preview. Uh, for that, the Thursday noon game, Jacksonville State. So if you're around the Tri-Cities, want to take a little lunch break, come catch a little hoops, you certainly could do that. But Thomas, a player that, you know, I, I, we talked a little bit at nauseum, at least uh, I have on the men's broadcast when mm-hmm. uh, talking about the women, the fact that she averaged like 17 at Florida International and went to Temple and only averaged like six. And I don't know what the, you know, offense and what she was asked to do or whatever, but she's been able to get back to what she was at Florida International and then some uh, early in this season. Yeah, and when you have a team that's more or less brand new, which is what Coach Mock has, you are looking for 
somebody to step up and take the banner and lead and just be a go-to player that you know in a given situation is going to be able to get you a bucket. And, I mean, it, as I was with the uh, the Lafayette game, she didn't score as many points, but the Lafayette game is probably better than the, um, the St. Bonaventure game because she had seven turnovers in that game as well. But she didn't have any, or she had one, sorry, uh, against the the Jaguars. So you're looking you're looking for that side kind of performance, but that kind of performance is the kind of performance that's going to lift you to a lot of wins. Um, because then, all right, everybody's going to be on the lookout for 30. That opens the door for Courtney Moore as she starts to get back to 100%. It opens the door for Nava Brown. Can you uh, get a different look with Jayla Rufus-Milner? Uh, can you go inside? Is that do you, do you bring an extra defender out? Okay, that opens the door for someone like Ja'Kaya Davis. Uh, and this team plays or can play a five outlook. They can play, they can straight up play five guards if they need to. And they did against Lafayette and they won that game by 20 points. Jumped out on them and won it big. So it's a very intriguing team, but you're looking for that that one reliable primary option. That's okay. This is our this is our rock. Thou art Peter, and upon my upon this rock I shall build my basketball team. Um, that's what Giselle Thomas is right now for Brendan Mock Brown. Is the primary option, the go-to player that's going to keep you in games, is going to keep you competitive, is going to get buckets for you when you need them, and that's going to give you an opportunity for your team to gel while still being competitive. You know, I was a little bit nervous. Yeah, I, I've been in those situations where you have a new coach, you have a lot of roster turnover, you have a program that's been through a lot uh, in a very short amount of time. This is what the third head coach in three years for ETSU women's basketball. And I was a little bit anxious. You go on the road that first time, you don't really know what you're going to get. To go on the road uh, against mid-majors for the first time and to get two wins, I think speaks volumes for the the ability of this team to be competitive in the middle of the pack in the SOCON and not just be, you know, scrapping to stay ahead of Western Carolina at the end of the year. I think this is a team that has an opportunity to win some games in league play, and we are seeing the very formative moments of that right now. Well, I think it helped last year. They they caught a little bit of lightning in a bottle towards the end of the year, the big win at Sanford at home. Again, tied, yeah. tied for fourth. Now, the tiebreakers didn't go the way, so they ended up being the sixth seed uh, in the tournament. But still, they were able to get in a tie um, kind of middle of that pack. And again, other than Mercer, I don't believe there's a clear cut. I mean, I think I could say Wofford Furman, that. but I mean, other than that, and I'm still not sold on Wofford Furman. So I don't think there's a clear cut number two team. So I think anybody from, I think the, the top and the bottom is dead set. And if you followed Southern Conference the last five years, you probably can guess who's at the top and the bottom. It's Mercer and it's, it's, it's Western. It's Western. So yeah. that being said, I also think it's going to help, and we like to use baseball terms a lot, but Courtney Moore's on a pitch count. I mean, I know, you yeah. know, and I said something when they get her back, and I'm sure somebody was going, what well, she, she's played. Yes, she has, uh, averaging like 16 minutes a game. So when they get her back a little more full tilt, then I think you'll see um, – I think, I think it would be a little bit still of a difference maker because it just gives you another scoring option. I know uh, she had six points last game, two of five, and Navy Brown actually 
didn't scratch was 0 for 4, and the other game she had 13. So between Brown and Moore, I think as long as they somebody can help Thomas up top, then I think Rufus Milner and I think Ja'Kia Davis can handle a lot of things on the block. Uh, but uh, you know, and I don't. Ja'Kia is amazing score. You know, again, can she play 25 minutes a game? She hasn't, and she hadn't for a couple of years. She's only been averaging about 17, 18 minutes, and that's kind of where she's lived. And, you know, playing about 20 minutes is probably where it's going to be, but she's so efficient. I mean, last game she had 16 points on 6 of 6 from the floor, 4 of 4 from the free throw line, 7 rebounds in 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. It's hard not to have her on the floor, but, again, there's other players in the post. And I like, I love the fact that they can rebound. I yep. mean, when you throw in McDaniel, Rufus Milner, and Ja'Kia Davis kind of as the, the three and the fives going in there, and then, well, McDaniel a little bit more of the four, I guess, then you look at some of the guards that can go get it. I mean, Thomas had five rebounds as a guard. Maybe Brown had six rebounds. So the rebounding to me is one of the biggest turnarounds this year that could help them win games besides the fact they've got a special score at least three games into the season in Giselle Thomas. So pretty excited about what Coach uh, Brandon McBrown's done. Be real curious on a home game, noon, you know, who kind of is ready to play in that type of atmosphere. Those are usually tough games for the most part to get up for, except for the fact I think ETSU played a noon game Saturday, or I know they did. So playing noon again maybe won't be that much of a shock to the system, but it's a midweek game, which I I do think makes it a little bit challenging. But hopefully the noon game, ETSU women's basketball fans, if you can't be there, we'll have it on the Buccaneer Sports Network. Keith Brake on his first official call. Yeah, looking forward to it. Should be fun. Now we flip to the men's side real quick. I think very – I was shocked when ETSU didn't win the game last night. I thought there was going to be a lot more not happy with the Bucs not winning, and it was the exact opposite. There were so many people – they were like, man, the way they played the second half, the way that the post is there this year, and you can really rely on Jalen Haynes who could have a special year, Brock Jancic uh, a little bit better than Elon, especially second half. He was in foul trouble first half, had a good second half, a little bit of a struggle. Again, foul trouble, and we'll have to see how that kind of pans out. But Josh Taylor's a rebounding machine, mm-hmm. 23 rebounds in the two games. King and Tipler – need a little, one other person to help him with three-point shooting. I think if it's just a two-person three-point attack, it's going to be a little difficult. But the way the Bucks rebound the basketball and have a post game and, you know, try to defend, there's only a spurt there in the second half where I think the defense, uh, a couple mistakes. But even Allen Struthers, I think he's a terrific on-the-ball defender. He goes and tries to get yep. rebounds. So I'm very excited about what we saw. Elon was picked lower part of the CAA. ETSU won that by 13. Then you play Louisiana, who was the preseason Sun Belt, uh, picked to win the regular season championship, the preseason favorites, if you will. Ten of the 14 coaches picked them to win. And then they've got, you know, maybe a pro on the roster in Jordan Brown, the 6'11 center, who at times looked disinterested, but when they needed it, he had eight straight points, and they were impressive. It was a 15-foot jumper. There was a, a turnaround soft baby hook. There was a power the man down, turn around, fall away jumper. And then I think he just had a catch and shoot. I mean, it was it was an impressive offensive array when he wanted to. Now, I would argue if I was a Louisiana fan, I talked to a, a, a couple of dads that I'd befriended the day on the Friday before we played. 
and basically was like, hey, that guy looks like he's unbelievable, but he doesn't play real hard. And he goes, oh, it's real frustrating for us because it was like he could have 35 a night. And after watching him Friday and Sunday play when he wanted to play and score eight or ten in a row like it was nobody's business, yes, he could. And I don't know if it's one of those where he's not challenged enough or if he just doesn't feel like he needs to – I don't know what it is, but he's certainly got some tools that – he was given, you know, at birth and all that good stuff, and he certainly worked on his game. But I thought Jalen Hayes holding his own on him was the most encouraging thing I've seen. The front court problems uh, are a thing of the past for the Bucks. I think this group has got it. Um, Taylor is going to be a really, really fun player to watch. You you see more of the high school background instead of the guy that um, a coaching staff at his previous institution did not think was uh, adequate to be on the floor at their level. Uh, this guy is just a phenomenal athlete. He can do a lot of different things. Jalen Haynes is a banger, man. It's just like your classic get in there, roll up your sleeves, get your hands dirty type of basketball player uh, that, that you love to see on the interior. It's a little bit old school. It's, it's fun to watch him do his thing. And also, you know, he's got a little bit of new school in the sense that he makes teams pay when you get physical with him and you send him to the free throw line. He was 9-9 in that game against the Raging Cajuns from the strike. Uh, that's somebody that's going to be really important to this team down the stretch. Uh, I think this group has maybe settled a little bit on a, a rotation. Um, I think they want to do 8. Would, would you like to expand that to 9 as the situation warrants... I think you can. I think you could expand it even a little bit more potentially. But when this team is in a game that it it really needs, you know, its absolute best to win. I think Desmond Oliver is comfortable shortening the bench to eight. I think it's Tipler, Justice Smith, and Jancic are the guys we're going to see the most off the bench this year. And that's not shocking given the first couple of games and the way they performed in those games. But uh, this group's got something. And if people think that sixth is where this group is destined to end up because that's where they were picked in the preseason poll. I think you're going to be very surprised when we get to January and we get to February and this team is right in the thick of the upper part of the SOCON. Now, are they going to win the SOCON? I didn't say that. I don't know that they will. Can they win 18, 19 games and be a problem and be competitive and maybe finish second or third? Oh, definitely. Definitely. This team's got what... I think this team's got enough to be good in this conference. I don't think it has enough to be dominant. This is not a 30-4 and four team in the making. But I think they have the ability to be good. They have the ability to be competitive. I think Desmond Oliver has put together a solid roster for his second year in charge. Uh, I, I agree. I think he wants to play eight. I think he's got to find that eighth guy. I think Justice Smith probably is going to get more of a shot right now than Christian Shaw and uh, Jamarius, Jamarius Harrison. And yep. I think he deserves to get that shot. But I think still in the D1, the two D1 games, it's looked a little fast and the physicality. And he's got a lot of holding and grabbing away from the ball fouls kind of called on him. So he's just, I think mm -hmm. he's just got to continue to adjust to the speed and the physicality. But I think clearly Tipler and – Jancic have solidified themselves six and seven coming off the bench. Probably Brock coming. Off I mean, the bench in, a, first. in a parallel universe, those guys are starting for this team right now. 
I think they're both good enough that they could potentially start for this team if they need if they need to. Yeah. So uh, again, very encouraged. Uh, a big win against Elon, and down to you know, down fourteen at the half. Got it tied. Lead got pushed back to double digits. Got it down to two in the basketball with twenty some seconds to go, and he gave it to Jalen Hayes, and it was just again a couple of calls that just you know. Over the weekend, it just didn't. Bucks just didn't get a whistle or a flag or whatever it was, and it happens. It's sports, you know, especially late in the game, especially in basketball. They seem to want you to make plays. Now they called every other foul known to mankind as the first game. Elon and Harvard was twenty uh, two hours and twenty minutes because both teams were in a double bonus with eleven minutes to go in a game. ETSU was in the double bonus with ten and a half minutes to go. And then it was a double bonus, I believe, with about six minutes to go. So, again, a lot of fouls, a lot of free throws. Early season basketball, right? It's what you sort of expect there. Real quick, so I don't want to do it a a super, super deep dive, but I did uh, want to bring up four interesting scores Thursday through Sunday in no particular order involving Southern Conference teams. Davidson uh, barely escapes beating VMI, the new-look Kedets at home, Davidson, Squeaks away a 75-71 win. That kind of raised an eyebrow. The Citadel knocked off Presbyterian, who's not particularly great in basketball, but the fact that they were able to kind of get a win kind of early for Ed Conroy and his team coming back. And, boy, Stephen Clark, 23 points and uh, shooting the basketball very well. Wofford, a loss that I thought was head-scratching, lost a high point, uh, 91-80. Uh, both teams, and this does not sound like a Wofford game, in the second half, Wofford put up 58 points but then gave up 52. We're used to the Wofford in the 22-20 to 20 range, uh, first half and second half splits, as opposed to 22 and 58. So um, able to score B.J. Mack, 21 uh, for him, kind of led the way. And then the one that uh, a lot of Buck fans were talking about because it's a team that ETSU, if you were in the, in the A-Sun for a long time, you hated – the Belmont Bruins, Furman, 15 Ugh. better, 89-74 over the Missouri Valley. Belmont, that sounds weird, right? The Missouri Valley, they've changed leagues a couple of times. Yeah. They were at A-Sun, OVC, now in the Valley. And Mike Bothwell, 25 points, Lawson, 17-12. and 12, And that was a big win. For were there them. any uh, catastrophic game-changing technicals in that game? Not that I am aware of. Okay. I didn't do a super deep dive of basketball. I'm trying to get through football, and then I'll probably start watching all these hoops games. Uh, And that is one because Belmont, who is now in the Valley, which can get multi-bid, multi-teams in the tournament. 100%. And will, I think, this year. So they tried to up their non-conference because they are playing Sanford, Furman, and Chat, the top three teams in the Southern Conference, and they've got another – few games scheduled uh, on there from other mid-majors the top couple teams in those leagues as well so they weren't trying to cherry pick some of the bottom teams and play um, you know citadel vmi western i mean they, they took the top three teams on on the schedule and we'll see how that works out for belmont for the league it would be great if you know everybody in the league beat them and yep. belmont goes on a run afterwards but I, I thought you know give bob ritchie and his squad uh credit Big home win. I thought that was the biggest eye-opener. But those are the four Southern Conference uh, basketball eye-openers from uh, last weekend, uh, again, on the men's side. So that is a look at uh, the show today. We talked ETSU football. We talked Southern Conference football. We talked ETSU women's basketball, men's basketball, both basketball teams in action Thursday in the Twilight doubleheader, the noon, 7 p.m., and then, of course, Saturday, Mississippi State football. And Sunday basketball, both, but only cover men's basketball. 
You'll be yeah. on TV. Well, I'm, we're covering women's basketball. Right. I got TV. Yeah, but you're going to be neutral. So it's, it's, oh, it's, yeah. it's not a, I mean, neutral. I'm using quotes. I mean, you'll be neutral-ish. Probably I feel neutral. like most of those broadcasts are like 55-45, which is reasonable. And then there are some I, that are I, not. I think me and you try to go 55-45. I feel like some of the others are about 80-20. That's a good point. That's a good point. I, uh, we we'll have Bracketology on Wednesday. Breakatology, even. Yeah, yeah, bro. There you go. Uh, Mercer fans won't like it. They won't like it. But other SoCon teams might enjoy it. All right. Breakatology, Wednesday. Jane Keith. Bugging his word network. Oh, you got to be kidding me.